Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 200 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Andrea Jane. Andrea is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the Indiana University School of Liberal Arts. She's also the editor of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, and she's the author of two books, Selling Yoga from Counterculture to Pop Culture and Peace Love Yoga, The Politics of Global Spirituality. In this interview, Andrea and I talk about her first book, The Selling Yoga Book, and we already have an interview scheduled to talk about her forthcoming book, The Peace Love Yoga Book. That is coming out at the end of July, and I have not had a chance to see the alley for that book yet, so I'm really looking forward to it and looking forward to what she has to say and what she's found from her continued research into the topic of yoga. Just as a side note, Andrea will be teaching for Jason's upcoming advanced teacher training, which is module three, and the training starts online July 13th. We have just a few spots left, so if you're interested in learning more or joining the training, you can go to our website at jasonyoga.com and click on 500-hour training to get the details. So as I listen back to this interview, I wish I had spent like two to three hours talking to her because I really just scratched the surface of so many different concepts and aspects of her book. And so I invite you to read the book. It's a great, well-researched book. I think it should be foundational learning for anyone who considers teaching yoga in the West. One of the reasons I wanted to interview her, in addition to clearly having produced such a well-researched piece of work, is because she doesn't have any skin in the game. And what I mean by that is that she's done yoga before, but she doesn't consider herself to be a yoga practitioner, nor does she consider herself to be a yoga teacher. So she has enough personal distance from yoga to be as objective as a person could possibly be when they're presenting and interpreting research. And as I see conversations arising admittedly mostly on social media, although some people do email me directly about what is quote unquote real yoga and who owns yoga and how are we going to decolonize yoga and whether the West has ruined yoga with a proliferation of physical yoga classes and focus on on asana practice and what is true yoga. I'll say that first of all, I don't have the answer to that question. But second of all, I want you to understand, and this is something that that Andrea puts forth early on in the book is that many of these questions and concepts and accusations are not new. And she traces this. And so yoga is sacred to so many people. And so there's there's always been a lot of concern and questions about who owns it and, and what the meaning of it is. And I think it's good to continue talking about it. And that's why I had this conversation with her. She also doesn't give anyone a pass, and when I ask her about cultural appropriation, she says, what comprises spiritual or physical perfection for one community might marginalize another. So clearly this is a conversation that needs to continue. I plan on continuing it with her in in regards to her next book. As I said, I can't wait to find out more about what this book focuses on. And then just one last one last little little thought I have that I want to throw out there is I find it really fascinating that she has considered calling our modern yoga practice a religion. And I talk about this with her at the end of the interview. And while I personally think that this could be problematic for many people who already have a religion and don't want to see yoga as a religious practice, I wholly appreciate her take on it because it's a very positive interpretation of how we're practicing in the West. And she makes the point that even if you are, quote unquote, just going into a space to do a physical yoga practice, most of us consider entering into that studio to be a sacred part of our day, a sacred part of our week. So I, I just think she has an incredibly nuanced way to think about all of these things from many different angles. She resists taking one lens and saying that that's the only lens and and hammering that lens home. And as I said, I would never pretend to be a person who has answers for everyone, every person about what yoga means to them. 
I just don't think that's possible. But what I think is possible is taking a very honest look at who we are, how we're practicing, doing our research, reading books, resisting getting into internet fights with people, (laughs) and listening to people like Andrea Jane who don't have a vested interest in how this topic turns out, if that makes sense. So I implore you to consider asking these questions for yourself. I implore you to read her book and to remain open and know that this conversation will and needs to continue. Well, Andrea, I'm so excited to talk to you today. I just crammed your book. I don't know how I never found it before because I know it's several years old, but I really enjoyed it for so many different reasons. And I wanted to just start out by addressing your name because it's something that you address early on in the book. And you talk about the fact that your last name is Jane. You're in part descended from the Jane lineage, but you don't identify as Jane. And yet you ended up studying the Janes. So if you could tell the story of how it came about that you ended up studying the Janes and then what that experience was like for you. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of a funny story. And it's actually, I think the reason I included it in the book selling yoga is because it's actually, I think, really closely related to the topic of global yoga. There are certain patterns that kind of overlap between the two stories of the one being my own personal story and the story of global yoga. So my father immigrated from India to the U.S. in the 1970s, and he had been raised in Orthodox Jain in India. But when he came to the U.S., he felt religiously disillusioned and sort of left his tradition behind him, married my mother, who was a white Midwesterner, and they raised us loosely Protestant, Hmm. Presbyterian to be specific. And I went to a variety of different religious schools, including a Catholic school. So I was exposed to a lot of different traditions. I was interested in the study of religion from a young age and particularly yoga, meditation, South Asian traditions generally. And uh, so I went to graduate school to get a PhD in religious studies with the intention of studying bhakti tradition, uh, the devotional tradition. But again, because of my name, Jane, I was approached by some Janes uh, from the business community who were sponsoring fellowships for students to go to India to study Jainism. And I thought, well, hell, I mean, I'm going to be a scholar of South Asian religions. I'm going to need to at the very least teach about Jain traditions. So this will be a really good experience for me. And it was while I was in India that I kind of stumbled upon this modern yoga tradition in Rajasthan that was a Jain tradition. And I was struck by the different approaches to the body between sort of traditional Jain approach to the body that sees the body primarily as an obstacle to spiritual development And the way the body was framed in this modern yoga tradition, where it was the body's health and well-being was imagined as an important step in on the spiritual path. Mm -hmm. And so this contrast between, you know, this Jain modern yoga tradition and the traditional Jain tradition with regard to views of the body kind of sucked me into the study of modern yoga because I was interested in the question of, you know, what changes about yoga and how does it become uh, shift from being this practice aimed at release from rebirth into the material world and therefore rebirth into bodies to a, bo- a tradition that's very body affirming mm-hmm. and sees care for the body and health and well-being as ends in themselves. And so then, you know, I ended up really trying to understand global yoga as a broader phenomenon. The way it sort of ties into the name is, you know, I myself am a product of globalizing processes. You know, I couldn't have existed without those processes and cultural mixing. So that came up again and again in my research, my own identity and relationship to the material, particularly the Jain material, but also, um, you know, yoga generally. I'm curious, was there any yoga practice in your family growing up? You, you mentioned that when you, you were always interested in religion and specifically yoga and meditation, did you have a yoga practice before you went to India? 
Yeah, I've actually always had a very distant personal relationship to yoga. So no, I have yoga practice. My first exposure to yoga was a yoga class I took while I was an undergraduate. Um, and But I didn't become a serious practitioner. I was a cyclist, and I sort of wanted to learn yoga as a way of supporting my cycling. Mm-hmm. And so I've used yoga on and off for, for that means, but I haven't, you know, ever been a serious practitioner. And the more I've, you know, become uh, kind of focused on yoga as a scholarly endeavor, I've kind of appreciated that distance because I feel, as a scholar, I feel really best positioned as an outsider. Right, right. Yeah, like you're not, you're not a complete insider, so you're not necessarily attached to the outcome of the research. Yeah, exactly. So I I mentioned to you in my email that the one thing I definitely want to speak to you about today is the issue of cultural appropriation, whether or not yoga, the way it's being practiced in the West is is cultural appropriation. I've gotten a bunch of questions about it lately from listeners, and I've also seen some pretty recent vicious online attacks about it actually toward people who I've interviewed for this podcast who I think have like the best of intentions and are just getting a lot of criticism because they're successful. And so in your book, you talk about the point of view that yoga is cultural appropriation, current modern yoga is cultural appropriation from Hinduism as the Hindu origin position. You call that the Hindu origin position. And I'm wondering if we can start with clarifying, if you could start with clarifying the main sort of foundations of that position of the the Hindu origin position? Yeah, so in the selling yoga book, I talk about these two sort of fundamentalist positions, both on on both religious sides. There's the Hindu origins positions, there's also the Christian yoga phobic. And in the yoga and the selling yoga, book, I I kind of compare these. And so these two really represent kind of extreme positions. There's a lot of gray area here. Mm-hmm. And so I'll try to articulate that too. So I'll start with the origins position. This is the position uh, that yoga has its origins in the Hindu tradition. So it's pretty explicit. In the book, I sort of problematize this idea because it makes the argument that the original yoga that we, you know, tracing back to 2,500 years ago, we can identify yoga in the Rig Veda, which is the oldest Sanskrit text we have um, and the oldest uh, text of the Hindu tradition. So yoga, according to this position, belongs to Hinduism or is rightfully Hindus. And the reason I push back against this argument is twofold. First of all, it really emphasizes the this conflation between the Hindu tradition and yoga. But historically, yoga has been something that's culturally South Asian. Mm-hmm. It's something that practiced by people of all different religions of South Asia, not just Hindus. And some voices within the Hindu origins positions articulate a very homogenous view of yoga. Yoga is the yoga of the yoga sutras. And then they offer up a very homogenous interpretation of this text, although there's been a number of conflicting interpretations. And of course, there's been countless yogic texts. The Yoga Sutras itself hasn't been the authoritative text on yoga historically. Uh, Likewise, there hasn't been one yoga tradition. Uh, Within Hinduism, there are countless yogas. And within South Asia, there are countless traditions in which yoga is important. And so I've described yoga as culturally South Asian rather than than Hindu or Buddhist or Jain. Yoga is found in all these different South Asian religions. And so I, I push back against this Hindu origins position because although it certainly can be argued that yoga has a long history in Hindu traditions, there is no single homogenous yoga uh, or authentic tradition Rather, there are many different yoga traditions uh, within Hinduism alone and certainly within South Asia. Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting because I think as modern yogis, we've all, I mean, I've been practicing yoga for almost 20 years now, and 
when I first started practicing yoga, I started practicing Ashtanga yoga, which you, you know, you talk about in the tradition of Patabi Joyce and you, you refer to that in the book. And I think that we as Westerners have relied for some time on this idea that we want to feel like we're practicing quote unquote real yoga, right? So in a way, we've relied on this idea that like yoga is 5,000 years old or it's 2,500 years old and it's ancient and all these things. And that's just fueling, (laughs) in a way, trying to legitimate ourselves is like fueling this this argument that it is Hindu, right? But what you trace really well in the book is that there's always been a commingling of yogic ideas between different groups. And there's always been an evolution. And it's it's never been just one, like you say a lot, you know, it's not monolithic. There's never just been one stream of the true authentic yoga. Yeah, right. And given the historical dominance of white Western discourses and the legacy of colonialism, it's not surprising that some see cultural appropriation in the yoga industry as disturbing and problematic. Right. There are good reasons for being uncomfortable with the appropriation of yoga in the yoga industry. That said, I am resistant to this argument that that Hindus own yoga or that there is a particular right way to do yoga or an authentic tradition that is traced back to one authoritative text or one authoritative teacher, mm-hmm. because that's just not historically accurate. <laughs> it's yeah. far more messy than that. Transmission is always messier than that. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I had read the argument that that one reason that Hindus quote unquote own yoga is, or, or, or I don't even know if the argument doesn't totally make sense to me. Maybe you can help me, but that yoga was outlawed during the British colonization of India. So I guess the implication is that if you are part of the repression, right? Like if you're a Westerner, you can't then co-opt it. Like you can't then practice it because you were part of the repression at some point. Yoga has been deemed beneficial by a number of different communities around the world for all different reasons. And sometimes it's for, you know, very utilitarian reasons having to do with health and, you know, physical fitness. Other times there are spiritual reasons, you know, white Americans practice yoga for for reasons beyond just fitness. Oftentimes, they'll cite real spiritual reasons like liberation, self-actualization. But what comprises physical perfection or spiritual liberation for one community might consequently marginalize, disenfranchise, or oppress another. Hmm. By saying that or South Asians have historically been oppressed because of the history of colonialism and the history of white supremacy, um, that doesn't mean that yoga can't be beneficial for white practitioners of yoga or Western practitioners of yoga. It simply means that that there needs to be sensitivity and reflection around the ways that appropriation can disenfranchise or oppress certain communities. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we're getting to this so quickly. Your book is 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 very research based, and you're laying laying out, you know, a, a hypothesis and, and an argument. And I'm a white woman who's been practicing yoga in the West for for 20 years, so clearly I have a bias. <laughs> like I I know going into this discussion, like I don't want to feel like I'm appropriating someone else's culture or religion. I don't want to feel like I'm the oppressor, but I also want to be sensitive to the topic. And I know that so many people who are listening do as well. So. Putting aside the extremism of the Hindu origin position, which is like, as you said, is really like ultimately a fundamentalist position. That position and the Christian yogophobic position are just two, two sides of the same coin, which I think is so interesting that you realize that. I'd never thought of that. But I'm just wondering, like, if you have any thoughts on how we can, as Westerners, keep practicing yoga without appropriating it inappropriately like right so i think that when appropriation and commodification entails an orientalist portrait of indian culture um, it's a problem and so by orientalism i mean this stereotype of india as spiritually rich 
but otherwise sort of culturally backward and despotic. Hmm. This is a stereotype that we see uh, oftentimes um, in different industries and seeking to kind of profit off of evocative objects associated with India and in the media as well. And so here, India is imagined as a place, a mysterious, exotic place that is, has all sorts of things to offer in terms of spirituality, but not in other areas of culture. For example, uh, the West has been imagined as rational hmm. in opposition to the spiritual East. And so for philosophy and technology, go to the West, but for spirituality, you know, yoga and meditation go to the East. Mm. And this sort of simplistic view of culture is problematic. And so when yoga appropriators perpetuate these kinds of stereotypes, I think that that it's it's problematic. So I would avoid selling yoga or imagining yoga as representing, you know, like, India's single and most valuable offering to the world because different Indians are going to feel differently about what they have to offer the world, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It could or could not be yoga. Uh, Not all Indians practice yoga and those who do would imagine a lot of other valuable things coming from Indian culture, um, not just yoga. And of course, again, probably not the kind of yoga that's practiced in a lot of Western contexts anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like av- avoiding this mythologizing and which is which is really patronizing. It is to put yeah. it plainly. <laughs> like just It is patronizing because it, it treats India as this sort of romantic love child mm-hmm. of the West that you know again is is really warm and fuzzy and mothering, right? It's in fact India is oftentimes called, quote, the motherland of yoga, right? And so India is imagined as this very effeminate, mother-like place that gave birth to yoga. And and it's just incredibly simplistic. And that sort of orientalist stereotype has been put to all, all sorts of colonial abuses. For example, the argument has been made that the, the East needs the West's domination the West has democracy and rational thinking and these kinds of things that balance out the despotic tendencies of the East. And so these kinds of stereotypes are put toward all sorts of political ends. Uh, That might not be the ends intended by cultural appropriators doing yoga, yet they can be put to these ends, whether that's the intention or not. Right. It's like it can kind of just continue to perpetuate stereotypes. Just even uncon- even unconsciously, yeah. Uh, well, I was also just going to say that it's also important that those appropriating yoga reflect on the history of colonialism and educate themselves on the history as well. I think that there are varying degrees to which those who practice yoga are aware of its history and are aware of the history of colonialism. So not just the history of yoga, but the history of colonialism. So that there can be some reflection on the ways these two, globalization of yoga and colonialism are related. And I think that you know, being educated and not just at, you know, asking white purveyors of yoga for the answers to these questions, but also South Asian practitioners of yoga for the answers to these questions is important. So that South Asians are given a voice in demarcating and explaining the history of yoga and its purposes, various purposes and meanings, uh, you know, and not just uh, white entrepreneurial authorities who have tended to been the most powerful in defining what yoga is for white consumers. Yeah, no, that's that's a really, really important point. I will admit, like, I know a lot more about the history. Well, I've read a lot more about the history of yoga than I have about the history of colonialism in India. So that's a really, I think that's a really salient point. I'll add just one more point that appropriators of yoga could be aware of and reflect on, and it might make their various modes of appropriation better than others. I do think there are better ways of appropriating than others. Hmm. And that is to think about the ways that appropriation 
reflects certain kind of racist or sexist values as well. So for example, you know, what is acceptable and what is not in your average yoga studio in the US and what is welcomed and what is not and how are those differences problematic? So for example, a white woman might be viewed as bold and fashion forward for donning a spiritual gangster t-shirt with good karma applicated across the front. But, uh, you know, and if she walked into your average yoga studio, she might be viewed as, again, bold and fashion forward, right? Mm -hmm. But if a South Asian woman walked into that same yoga studio wearing traditional South Asian clothing, would she be welcomed in the same way? Or might she be viewed for as uh, and judged as not assimilating hmm. appropriately, right? Like she doesn't fit in or she doesn't belong there or she's not adapting to the environment. Oftentimes we hear about women of color and men of color as well feeling uncomfortable in, in yogic spaces in the U.S. and in other areas of Western culture. And the question is, you know, why? Why are why are people of color feeling uncomfortable? Is there a race problem mm -hmm. in the yoga industry? And how can the yoga industry address that and make these spaces truly more diverse and more comfortable for people with different types of bodies? And one thing that I actually found so interesting in the book that, I mean, I knew about Swami Vivekananda coming to the West at the turn of the century and giving that talk at the World Parliament of Religions and everyone giving him a standing ovation. But you talk about, I, I don't think I really put it together that he sort of put forth this idea that he was teaching the true yoga, that Raja yoga was the true yoga and that yoga that focused on the body was not so much the true yoga. Like there's the, these splits have been going on for a long time. And I don't think I, I don't think I knew that. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's the history of human cultures generally arguments over, you know, what's the authentic right way to do something and what's not. Mm -hmm. And so you look at it, you know, from a broader perspective on cultural studies or history, it's not surprising that there's always been arguments over what yoga is or how it ought to be practiced. These arguments have been you know, are as old as yoga, you know, arguments over how it ought to be done. And I think that when it comes to white appropriators practicing yoga, there's oftentimes a sort of nostalgic appeal to an origin story. Like, you know, we're practicing the authentic yoga that was passed down by this teacher, this Indian teacher, and therefore it must be authentic and right. And as long as we follow that teacher and practice it exactly how, you know, he, he practiced it or taught it, then we're doing yoga right. Mm -hmm. uh, problem with that argument is that it implies that other ways of doing yoga are wrong, right? Anytime you sort of appeal to this sort of nostalgic image of this authentic tradition, it really is exclusionary. And what you're excluding is not just other white practitioners of yoga, but many Indian practitioners of yoga who aren't following in that particular tradition. When I see the argument online that yoga is inherently Hindu and that, you know, if you're not Hindu, you shouldn't be practicing yoga. I think about the Indian people who I've met who, like, I, I can just remember when I was in, in Hong Kong meeting a young Indian yoga teacher whose father owned a, basically like a yoga health and wellness center in India. And he, I remember him saying, you know, we don't really focus on the spiritual side. We focus on people who have illnesses and conditions who come in and, we focus on getting them well through the physical practices of yoga. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's like, it's had so many different iterations right. in India as well as here. Another thing that I learned from the book was that, you know, I think as Westerners, we carry, like you said, that we, we often look to the origin story to legitimize like the practice and to legitimize what we're doing. And I don't necessarily think that comes from a bad place. I think it comes from so many people feel like yoga is so, so like has created such powerful transformation in their lives. They think it must be have this like magnificent origin story. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with with mythologizing yoga, except when it's done in an exclusionary way. 
except when it's done to demarcate right versus wrong. And so, again, this is something you see in the history of religions and cultures generally, this attempt to define orthodoxy, right? And when you do that, you exclude others. I mean, the establishment of orthodoxy depends on the creation of outgroups. Um, and so you can mythologize yoga. You can kind of tell stories and pass on stories in ways that are inclusionary, right? That celebrate its variety and heterogeneity and its differences across different systems and teachers, right? You can tell that story as well. And it's just as magnificent a story, if not more magnificent a story, the fact that yoga could be put toward all of these varying purposes and take all of these outstanding forms and be liberating for in so many different ways for different communities. And it's a story that makes it, in my view, more difficult to simplify and commodify and politicize yoga. So, you know, if you're if you're invested in yoga because you think that it's something that's truly valuable and, and benefits people, then you I would think that you'd want to not contain it mm-hmm. and politicize it toward ends that might oppress people or hurt people or exclude people, right? And so I'm not pushing back against mythologizing yoga. I, I think that that real mythologizing has its purposes. It can, you know, really unite communities and and it can be really deeply valuable. It's just that there are different ways of mythologizing. Hmm. Interesting. It just brings up to mind for me when you were talking about that, I'm making a little bit of a leap here, but I feel like over my years of, of studying yoga, like through my work and, and my practice, I have naturally gotten just more open to all the different ways it can be practiced, all the different meanings that it has for people. The one place where I come up against trouble in terms of my own opinion is I think leaders who you refer to in the book as God men. Mm -hmm. And I actually think of Bikram as like one of those quote unquote God men. And he actually did a podcast recently with a producer who did a, a docuseries about Bikram and all of the like incredibly disturbing allegations against him. And so feel like I want to like do a whole other podcast with you about Godman because the longer I'm in this community, the more I just see examples of it. You mentioned Sai Baba in the book, and I have friends who were devotees of his, and they might still be. And so I and I actually didn't know his backstory. There's also that new documentary on Netflix, Wild Wild Country, about Osho, and there's like a lot of disturbing stuff there. And so and more influential than any of those figures is Patabi Joyce. Uh, and the Me Too movement especially has brought to our attention the many women who felt sexually abused by Patabi Joyce. And so sexual violence and abuse is rampant in the yoga industry. We know this. Mm-hmm. And It's something that also needs to be reflected on. We need to think about not just men abusing women, but also the, you know, very complicated dynamics that involve race and class and authority and power. Uh, You know, there are different abuses of authority within any given industry. And so one could argue that certain forms of appropriation can be abuses of authority. For example, when you know a white practitioner of yoga orientalist stereotypes or insists on one authentic mode of yoga at the exclusion of others. But then there's also you know various sexual abuses that take place between teachers and students and gurus and students. And it's not just these kind of top of the hierarchy gurus or godmen who are accused of sexual abuse, but also also everyday yoga teachers. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of Western yogis, myself included, I'll often say, you know, I'm not religious, but yoga is kind of like a religion to me. And you see these similar types of power abuses in very organized religions. And so I as these things as these things have been coming to light more and more, I, I'm constantly thinking about like, well, 
how do we fix this as a community? Like, how do we police ourselves better? Because even if we are not a completely quote unquote organized religion, there's aspects of that surrender versus power dynamic that are there. They're just there. Yeah, I think that, uh, and this is something I address at at length in the current book project I'm working on, which is specifically on the politics of global spirituality with a focus on the yoga industry. And so I talk there a lot about uh, the politics of appropriation and also the sex abuse scandals and try to point out there that the what's oftentimes termed the spiritual but not religious movement, you know, those who identify as spiritual but not religious because they self-describe as, you know, non-institutionalized or not belonging to mm-hmm. a religious institution or, or a traditional religion, they oftentimes think that they're therefore escaping all of the, you know, bad aspects of religion, right? If I don't belong to a religious institution, therefore, I'm going to free myself from authoritarian abuse. Yes, right? that's no, that's so true. I, I mean, I think I'm one of those people who thought that until recently. Yeah, and the fact is that authoritarian abuse occurs everywhere, <laughs> in every organization, every institution, and there's always got to be checks and balances, always, everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's spiritual or religious, right? There's got to be checks and balances on authoritarian abuses and hierarchy and patriarchy and these kinds of, of oppressive forces, as well as capitalism, and the ways that that tends to create hierarchies where power is concentrated in the hands of few. And that's, you know, what's happening in the yoga industry is you've got, you know, authoritarian abuses of all different kinds. Yeah. You have a whole chapter in the book where you talk about this idea that considering postural modern yoga as a body of religion, which I had never thought of it that way. And I think that's because I have always thought the definition of religion is, you said, a very organized and institutionalized body, requires you to subscribe to certain doctrines, engage in certain specific worship and rituals. So as since I have a religion professor on the on the line here, like, can you talk more about this? Like, what is your definition of religion in this context? And then how do you see postural yoga fitting into that? Yeah, so I try to define religion more loosely than the way it's traditionally been defined, because I think that oftentimes when we use the word religion, religion itself is a Western category. And so it betrays all sorts of Western assumptions about what is really religion versus what's not. And religions oftentimes imagine as an institution within which individuals are kind of united by shared beliefs. And historically, religions have as much been about shared practices as they've been about shared beliefs. And so in religious studies, in this field of religious studies in which I locate myself, we sort of already, we're all sort of working under this looser definition of religion as, and we all define it differently to tell you the truth. I mean, there's internal debates within the discipline about how religion should be defined. But at the very least, we all see practice as important for unifying religious communities as belief. And so in in the Selling Yoga book, I attempt to kind of offer up my own theorization of religion. And I talk about religion as something that binds communities around, it can be shared beliefs, uh, commitments about what exists, and uh, but it's also shared aims or goals. It's uh, shared rituals, and it is about shared myths. And all of these mythologizing, ritualizing practices unite social communities, create social groups. And so if we adopt this broader definition of religion, then yoga, even in its most popularized forms, all of a sudden can look quite religious. Hmm. Because yoga is a space that is even oftentimes described by yoga practitioners, even among the most kind of fitness oriented ones as a sacred space that is set apart from day to day life. Mm-hmm. Yoga is oftentimes imagined as a special or sacred time of the day or time of the week or space where one retreats everyday life, leaves behind ordinary obligations, and the sort of drudgery of 
day-to-day work life um, and enters into a space that is about self-cultivation, self-perfection, self-actualization. And we've already touched on the various stories that are important to, to yoga communities, the myths about lineage, history. And then you've got the rituals. A huge part of what unites yoga communities are the practices themselves. You know, the, the postures, the breathing, the sequences. And these are, again, when you sort of step back, I think they really betray a religious character. And so what I'm trying to do there by theorizing religion in this broad way is just say that the yoga people should be taken seriously as as religious communities, as making up religious communities. That, you know, yoga isn't just, it's not merely a commodity put toward utilitarian ends. It's not like a can opener. It, you know, it has deep meanings uh, and purposes and roles in the lives of those who practice it. Right. No, it is really, you're right. Like all of those rituals, even if they are viewed disdainfully as just quote unquote physical, they're imbued with meaning for people. Right. Yeah. Far beyond just, you know, base utilitarian ends. Right. Right. The only thing like as I was reading the book, the only thing that kind of quite honestly worried me about looking at it that way is that it could spark more fear from people who feel very entrenched in their own personal religion, whatever that is, like whether they're Christian or Jewish or whatever, that they might then feel like, okay, well, I can't do this because, you know, I don't want to do this practice because it's a religion or I don't want it in my kid's school or at work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's why I push back against this idea that yoga is Hindu. So I argue in that book that yoga is more it's it's religious in the sense of, ha- of of betraying a sort of global consumer religiosity, a sort of certain attitudes, rituals, values, aims that are shared by various religious communities, but within all within this sort of global consumer culture. So I talk about, in other words, in the chapter on Hindu or the Hindu origins position and the yoga phobic Christian position, I talk about how the Christians have a lot more in common, the Christians who are, you know, saying Christians shouldn't do yoga, they have a lot more in common with the yoga people than they think. So because if you actually hear, listen to them in the ways they talk about the body, they oftentimes will use a lot of the same language to talk about the body. They'll say, you know, self-care is sacred. It's godly. We should treat our bodies as temples. And so this betrays certain religious values that I think actually are shared across many different religious communities. And so I I hope that that argument that it's not religious in an exclusionary way, in the sense of belonging to Hindus, but not to Christians. It's religious in the sense of reflecting certain kind of modern, globally pervasive commitments and values that you find across many different religious traditions. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense. And it's kind of like, it's the commonality of being human as well, <laughs> like the shared values. Being- Especially since we're all kind of, you know, stuck in these bodies. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we do tend to want to keep them healthy and alive. That tends to be a shared goal across cultures and religions. Uh, in fact, one of the things, one of the patterns you find across religious traditions is a concern with health and life. Hmm. And in and, and questions about death, uh, that's certainly a concern in the yoga industry, right? How can we keep our bodies alive and well? Yeah, absolutely. And also, like you said, wondering, you know, all the metaphysical questions, why am I here? What happens when I die? How can I relieve the suffering of the dying process? How can I relieve the suffering of the living, living process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those questions are oftentimes addressed in within the industry to varying degrees, right? Generally, the kind of body question is pervasive across yoga traditions, modern yoga traditions, that is, a sort of concern with like maintaining care for the body. But then the extent to which the those other questions are addressed, you know, those vary from yoga, you know, one context to another, you know, the extent there's questions about the afterlife, or karma and rebirth, or enlightenment or liberation. 
Okay, I'm going to switch gears for a moment. I don't even know if you're going to have an opinion about this, but I am just, I find it so interesting that in the yoga community, we often refer to Patanjali's Yoga Sutra as like the main text. Mm -hmm. It's a dualist philosophy. But then on the other hand, I think most modern yogis actually teach a more tantric philosophy or more non-dualist philosophy. Right. Like even in the little things that we say, like we're all one, we're all connected or I mean, all of it. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about the evolution of this text or, or how it was passed down, if that contributes to why we revere it so much or is it just uh, that we look at it as part and parcel of of the overall crossing of all the streams and evolution of yoga? Yeah, I think that the reason why the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras have become this particularly important text in the yoga world is it provides an easy way to establish authenticity. I mean, anytime we can point to one text, one source, one authoritative source, it makes yoga or any product easier to contain and commodify and sell, right? It's about telling a story and it, it's, it's easier, you know, it's easier to provide a short, concise yeah. and simple story and it, it makes it easier to pass on right? and perpetuate. This is how branding works too. Right, right, right. And uh, brand image, Im- image making can't be too complex, right? You don't want to provide some kind of complex story as to why Cheerios are the best cereal in the world for kids, right? You want to come up with really short and pithy expressions that will be remembered and passed on from one kid to another on the playground. Uh, likewise, with any industry, with any uh, area of culture, it's easier to you know contain and pass something on if there's a simple story. And so the Yoga Sutras, because it provides these sort of eight limbs that are mm-hmm. easy to kind of summarize, memorize, and disseminate, I think that's why it's become so important. It's also been supported by a lot uh, among uh, South Asian Hindus who have also used the Yoga Sutras as a way of defining Orthodox Hinduism. And so there's oftentimes, you know, a sort of conversation going on between the, you know, South Asian Hindu practitioners of yoga and white appropriators of yoga, where both are sort of making appeals to the Yoga Sutras as the authoritative text. Mm -hmm. In both cases, it demarcates a sort of authentic tradition which has political purposes as well as disseminating purposes. And so for that reason, the Yoga Sutras have you know, really been appealed to over and over again, despite certain inconsistencies. For example, the, the dualist philosophical underpinnings of the Yoga Sutras and the ways that that might conflict with the non-dualist mm-hmm. philosophical underpinnings of modern yoga. Yeah, that's so true. It's like you said, I mean, in branding, short and concise, and then things that are multi-stepped, you know, you said the eight limbs, it's like, it's a path, there are steps, it's a progression, it just appeals, it appeals to people. I hadn't, I, it's funny that I'd never really thought of that. And it gives us, it also gives modern yogis, like, we all practice a little bit differently, but it's almost like that's the one through line, that's the one touchstone right? that everyone can refer to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, gives, it provides a language for talking about yoga. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about this, the new book that you're working on, and, and how long will we have to wait for it? Oh, sure. Well, uh, yeah, so this book is Peace, Love, Yoga, The Politics of Global Spirituality. And it's contracted with Oxford University Press uh, and should be completed within the next couple months. Ooh. So, you know, it always takes a while for something to actually get published in the flesh. Uh, so I can't say when it'll be in the flesh and available, but hopefully in the next year or so. And uh, that book really tries to analyze a spirituality as a global movement. It's oftentimes been thought about as a Western phenomenon, the sort of spiritual but not religious. But I argue that this is uh, a growing phenomenon all over the world, including in India, and that it's deeply political. And so I look at the ways that power gets exercised in especially the yoga industry. And so 
the Selling Yoga book, I really looked at how yoga went from becoming a part of counterculture to a part of pop culture. And then in the, the Peace Love Yoga book, I'm going to attend more to pow- how power is at play in the industry in India as well as in the West. Mm-hmm. And so I look at, for example, Bikram and his sort of rise and then downfall and the way authority played out in his movement. And I look at Baba Ramdev in India, who's the most famous yoga guru in India, who also teaches yoga primarily as modern postural yoga practice and is a, a close ally of the current prime minister of yoga, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who's a right-wing politician. And so I look at that power dynamic and how it plays out in, in India today. And then I look at the sex abuse scandals and the way that yoga as an industry has come to represent certain forms of feminism that are about uh, women's empowerment and especially empowerment of their over their own bodies, but then also doesn't challenge or doesn't account for other for, you know, forms, certain forms of patriarchy, especially the ways that they take form in, in sexual abuse scandals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I look not just at, you know, Indian godmen, but also everyday yoga teachers and the ways that, you know, consent is or is not present in yoga studios. Uh, yeah. Wow. So that just gives you kind of a sampling of some of the topics I'm going to cover in that book. I, I also I should also mention that I also look at the yoga wear industry. I'm really interested in the sort of text of the yoga wear industry and the ways that certain political messages are conveyed through the text of the yoga industry. So, for example, through T-shirts that say peace, love, yoga, or that have karma applicated across the butt. Hmm. Wow, that sounds fascinating. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Others do too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. And I hope you'll come back and talk to me again when when your next book comes out. Yeah, sure. Anytime. I'm happy to do it. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you. Thanks as always for listening. I hope this interview gave you some food for thought. I so look forward to interviewing Andrea again at the end of the summer and publishing that interview as soon as possible after I get a chance to talk to her. So probably late August, early September. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 200 and I will include links to her book and her forthcoming book, which you can order online. As always, it's super, 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 super helpful if you leave me five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And also, if you appreciate this episode, please do share it. And until next week, enjoy your practice.